Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Well, good morning and welcome to the Grove. So glad that all of you are with us today. My name is Stephen and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are kicking off a brand new sermon series this morning called Keys to the Kingdom. Now, one of the things that we typically do in our sermon series is we kind of try to marry kind of like real life situations and application in scripture and and kind of look at the ways that scripture can inform how we think and live and act in our day-to-day life. And so a lot of times it's really practical. And so you have a lot of different scenarios where we talk about real life stuff that happened in our daily lives. And sometimes it allows us to do fun things like last week where we had people throwing things at other people on stage. So if noticed by the laughter, most of you weren't in church on Sunday. So (laughs) that might be what we need to talk about this morning. But if you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it because things were thrown at other people on stage. And then sometimes we have a different type of sermon series and we talk about something else. And that's what this sermon series is about. Now, I don't want you to think that, uh uh-oh, it sounds like we're in for a boring sermon series because that's not the case. But it's a different sermon series. And it's a sermon series that wrestles with and unpacks this one idea about this phrase, the kingdom of God. And so for the next six or seven weeks, we're going to be looking at this idea And before we do that, though, we've got to spend some time today kind of laying some foundation and some groundwork for what's going to happen. Now, one of the things that I like to do to relax in my own life is I like to watch movies. And sometimes I'm in the mood for a movie that is not that serious. Maybe it's a comedy of some sort, but it's the type of movie that I can passively watch while I scroll Instagram or I'm on my phone checking email, things like that. That's often the type of movie that I look for to relax. And so there are other times, though, when I'm actually interested in watching the movie that's playing, and maybe I'll pick a different type of movie, a more serious movie, maybe a movie with subtitles. Now, if you notice that if you try to scroll through your phone and not really engage and pay attention when it's a serious movie or one with subtitles, you end up missing kind of the point and the the theme and the ideas and the plot of the movie. And you look up and you're like, I don't really understand what's happening. This is one of those kind of movies today. So if you have your phone in hand, I'm going to need you to put it in the pocket because we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going from Genesis to Revelation and there's going to be some subtitles. So I just need everybody to maybe go get a quick refill of coffee and buckle up because away we go. All right. So to kick off this sermon series, we're going to begin to ask the question, who is Jesus? What is he all about? And if you had to summarize Jesus's main idea, all of Jesus's teachings, the core of Jesus's message, if you had to think to yourself, okay, if I had to synthesize everything that Jesus says is about, taught, lived out, demonstrated in his life, it would be contained in fill in the blank phrase. Now, for some of you, it might be, be a good person. It might be, forgive others. It might be, love your enemy as yourself. It might be, do unto others as other people have, you know, you'd like them to do to you. It might be one of these things. But in fact, what we're going to look at is in three of the four gospels, there is a phrase that is central, the authors point out, to Jesus's entire message and ministry. 
And it's none of the things that we just talked about. There's one statement that each of the authors of the gospels put into Jesus's mouth. They say that this is the thing that he says. And so throughout the course of this series, we're going to look at one of those gospels, and that's the gospel of Matthew. And in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus makes one statement at the very beginning of his ministry that should color and create the lens through which we look at everything else he says and does. And in fact, if we can understand this one statement, if we can understand this one idea that Jesus shares, it'll help us understand the entire story of Scripture. So if the Bible's ever been confusing, if the Bible is currently confusing, if you don't really understand how all of the pieces fit together, you know, there's some passages in the beginning that seem kind of like about the beginning of the world, and then it gets like a lot of history, and I kind of check out and I flip past the maps to the the New Testament. If that's kind of been your experience with Scripture— If I do my job well today, hopefully you will come away with a whole new understanding of how the entire story of Scripture fits together and why Jesus is at the very center of it and what that means for our lives. No small feat, but we're in it together. So here we go. We're going to jump right into Matthew. In the fourth chapter of Matthew, Jesus steps onto the scene. We've seen a little bit about his genealogy, what his birth order was like, what this looks like, his history. We hear a little bit about this guy named John the Baptist who is kind of setting up and paving the way for Jesus to show up. And then Jesus shows up. And these are the first things out of his mouth publicly. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Now, for most of us, when we look at this, there's one part that seems a little confusing, and it's this part right here, the kingdom of God. What does this mean? This is used over and over again in Scripture, and in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Of all of his teachings, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God most, more than forgiveness, more than love, more than money, more than sin, more than any of the things that maybe we think summarize and synthesize Jesus' teaching and message. He talks about the kingdom of God. Now, here's what we're inclined to do as kind of Western Americans. We insert our own definitions of these words into the language that we read in Scripture. And so when we see repent for the kingdom of God is here, we begin to think of like a physical location, like an actual place. Now, part of the reason that this is why we we are inclined to do so is because kind of throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the kingdom of God and this other phrase, the kingdom of heaven, synonymously. They're interchangeable. He kind of goes back and forth. And so they all refer to the same idea, but because we think of heaven as this place where God lives, we're inclined to think that the kingdom of God is, again, something related to a physical place. But if you look at the language that the Bible was written in, if you look at Hebrew and in Greek, this word kingdom doesn't actually mean a physical territory. It doesn't mean a place. It's a broader term that would more likely, more accurately be described as the activity of God's will being done. Or the place where, it assumes a location, the place where the reality in which God's wishes are fulfilled. God's will is done. People are in the activity of living by, carrying out 
God's will. Or, in English, it might be like this, repent. For the reign of God is here. See, there's this idea that God is this king and there is a way of living in which everybody operates under the wishes and the will of the king. Just like if you were in charge of your household or you were in charge of a company and you gave a bunch of rules and when people followed those rules, that would kind of be considered your reign. That would be a demonstration of how people are living and acting in accordance with your rule or your reign. And so this is this idea that Jesus shows up on the scene talking about. And it's a little confusing because it's so different than kind of our understanding of a kingdom. He's not referring specifically to a place, but it's an idea about a reality in which we all can live in and participate in where we are living in fulfillment of and in accordance to the rule, the wishes, the will of God. Now, this idea about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, doesn't begin with Jesus. This is an idea that we find in the very first pages of scripture. And it's an idea that we see in the very final paragraphs of scripture. So let's jump to where this idea of the kingdom of God or the reign of God all starts. That's in the first chapter of Genesis. So this is the author kind of writing this poem about how the world began. And this is what the author says, God created humanity in God's own image. There's a direct likeness between humans and God. They mirror God, the way he acts, the way he behaves, his values, all of those things. There should be this mirroring effect between humanity and God. That's how God designed it to work, that we would be like little mini gods in the way that we acted and conducted ourselves. And so God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And in the Hebrew, that word subdue actually translates better as be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. And so from the very beginning, we see that the author of Genesis is trying to communicate this idea that God establishes humanity as his kind of proxy rulers over God's kingdom. He says, listen, I've created you to be image bearers of me. You're supposed to be like me. You're supposed to do the things that I would do. And in my presence, in my proxy, I want you to rule over the earth. Now, it doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want and, and you can kind of get into some of the ecological ideas, but really the idea is God puts humanity in charge. And that's what it says in the very next verse. God continues on with his instructions to humanity at the very beginning. He says, take charge, be responsible for the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. So in a less glamorous way, this is kind of like God has established humanity as like middle management for the world. God's like, okay, I created it, I'm in charge, but I need you to run the show. That's kind of how the scripture translates. And so from the very beginning, we get the sense that humanity's responsibility is to rule for God, to rule in place of God within God's kingdom. And so anywhere that we rule in accordance with God's will and wishes, 
that's where God's kingdom, that's where God's reign is. And that's how this whole story starts. The story of humanity from the very first pages of Genesis starts with God putting us in charge to carry out God's reign, God's rule over the world. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the Hebrew scripture, you recognize that things quickly go sideways. This was God's intent. This was God's plan. But here's what happens. Humanity decides, we decide that we know better, that we're smarter than God, that in fact God is withholding things from us and the life that God is inviting us to participate in isn't as full of a life as we could have. And in fact, God's kingdom, God's reign is a little suppressive. And so really what we should do is establish our own kingdom, decide our own rules. We really know better than God. And if we did things our way, things would be better. We'd be happier, more fulfilled. And so that's what happens in the very next chapters of Genesis. You have the story of Adam and Eve and a tree and a decision to do what they want over the wishes and the will of God. And this sets humanity off in this kind of divergent story in this divergent path from the one that God intended. And so throughout the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, what we see again and again is this conflict between God wanting humanity to establish God's kingdom and humanity thinking they know better and deciding to establish their own kingdoms instead. And time and time again, as you read throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, what you see is that humanity's kingdoms never last. They always lead to the same place. Suffering, oppression, injustice, slavery. The people on top taking advantage of the people on bottom for their advantage. Again and again and again. Most notably, we see this in the story of Egypt and the Israelites. And so what does God do in that moment? He recognizes that humanity isn't following the path that he set out for them. They're not ruling the world like God intended us to rule. So he goes in through Moses and he rescues the Israelites and he takes them out of Egypt away from the bad, oppressive, evil kingdoms of humanity. And he takes them out with this hope and this promise to establish a new kingdom, a new place where they will live in accordance once again with God's rule. They'll follow God's wishes, God's will. They'll finally be able to live in God's kingdom. And so you have this climactic scene where Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. Charlton Heston's holding the tablets. And God gives them the instruction. What's this instruction for? This is the rule. These are the rules for how to live in God's kingdom. If you follow these things, you'll, you'll understand how you can create God's kingdom here on earth. How you can participate in this plan that God had from the very beginning. But again and again and again, we struggle to follow God's plan. We struggle to follow God's intent for our lives. That's to be rulers over God's kingdom in his stead and in his place. And so finally it crescendos with this group of people called the Israelites. And they say, you know what, God, we're tired of doing it your way. We want to do it our way. We want our own king. And this is what we see in the book of 1 Samuel. 
Samuel is praying to God because he's having a conflict with the people of Israel. Samuel's the prophet. He's the one that's kind of helping translate the message from God to the people. And the people are like, we've had enough. We're fed up. And this is what happens. They say, Samuel's talking to God. He says, they say, give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel because Samuel knew. Samuel understood that this was the history of humanity. And this path ends up in the exact same place as it has done every time before. This displeased Samuel. And so he prays to the Lord. God, what do you want me to do? They, they don't want to follow you anymore. They want their own king. And so the Lord tells him. He says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected. But they have rejected me as their king. This is God recognizing once again, humanity is not interested in God's kingdom. Humanity is not interested in participating in God's rule here on earth. We know better. We know what will make us happy. We know what will bring us fulfillment and meaning and purpose in our lives. God, we just need you to get out of the way and let us do it. So God says, listen, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They don't want me as their king. They're not interested in participating. And they've done this from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. This is the story of humanity. This is the story you see throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Again and again and again. We want to go our own way. We don't want to participate in the rule of God in this world. We think we know better that our kingdom would bring us more happiness. And so God says, okay, I'll allow you to establish your own kings. But here's what your kings have to do. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago and we talked about King Solomon and the rules that he had to obey, these are the rules that God set forth for all of the kings of Israel. All right, if you want your own kings, if you don't want to listen to me, if you don't want to follow my rule, here are some guidelines for your future kings. They can't have horses from Egypt. They can't have a lot of gold. They can't have a lot of silver. They can't have foreign wives. They can't have too many horses. These are the restrictions for the king. Now, if you think about ancient kings and what you know of ancient kings and kingdoms, these rules seem really contrary to the way that you would establish your kingdom in the world. You'd want to amass as much wealth and power as possible, and you'd want to create military and political alliances with other nations and kingdoms. And so the natural inclination of human kingdoms leads you away from all of these rules that God establishes for his own kings. And that's the problem that we see again and again. Now, the reason God established these rules is because his kingdom has always been designed to be a contrary kingdom to the kingdoms of humanity, to the kingdoms of this world. It's not supposed to look like what we think kingdoms are supposed to look like. It's never about power. It's never about wealth. It's never about strength or might. And we'll see this as we unpack this series over the next several weeks. It's subversive. It flips the whole thing upside down about what it means to live in a kingdom. And God's kingdom is profoundly different from the ways that we imagine kingdoms operating, the way that we see companies and corporations and countries and empires operating in the world today. It's diametrically opposed for a reason. Because earthly kingdoms, they never last. And they always lead to a place of Slavery and oppression and injustice again and again and again. So after a while, Israel has a lot of kings. 
40 to be exact, and only eight of them get passing grades. And so eventually, where does their kingdom lead them to? Slavery, oppression, subjection to another kingdom. Their kingdom doesn't last. No king is able to sustain their earthly kingdom. And so they end up being taken prisoner. They end up being captive by this other country, this other kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, and all of the best and the brightest and the educated of Israel are taken into captivity. And so then it, there's this whole new section of scripture in the Old Testament called the prophets that are wrestling with trying to make sense of how God would allow this to happen to them. Where was God in all of this? How would God allow their kingdom to fail? This was supposed to be God's kingdom. Because again, we never understand that God's kingdom looks different than our kingdoms. And so in this place of desperation, confusion, pain, slavery, they write this book called the book of Isaiah. And it's the accounts and the words of this prophet who shows up and reminds Israel this thing that they have forgotten again and again and again, that their kingdoms never last and that God's kingdom looks dramatically different than what they can possibly understand. And so in Isaiah chapter 52, the author writes these words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger. That's a kind of a strange way of saying like, this is unbelievable news. How beautiful are the feet. This is great news. Get ready for this. You're not gonna believe this. How beautiful are the feet of the messenger who proclaims peace, who brings good news. That word translates to gospel. Maybe this is a word you've heard who proclaims salvation and who says to Israel, guess what? Your God rules. Now this idea of good news always came before the announcement of a new king or a new kingdom. And so all throughout the ancient Middle East, you would have messengers show up announcing the good news that King so-and-so was now on the throne. And so what the author of Isaiah is saying is, listen, in the same way that you understand the way that messengers show up to announce the good news of the kingdom. There's a new kingdom here. Your God rules, and it is better news than you could ever imagine. And so hundreds of years before Jesus shows up onto the scene, the prophet Isaiah foretells him coming and carrying the message that we've already seen. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. God's rule begins now. There has been this whole period of time where we have lost the plot. We have tried to establish kingdoms for ourselves, but all of our earthly kingdoms fail. And there's great news because God's rule, it's here. You can experience it. You can participate in it and you can live in it. And so this is the unbelievable news. Now, what's amazing is this isn't where we see the end of this idea of God's kingdom. The writer of Revelation, anticipating how all of this story wraps up, writes these words, continuing this idea of God's kingdom, the thing, this idea that God establishes in the Garden of Eden, the thing that the Israelites have lost along the way as they try to establish their own kings and their own kingdoms. 
and this announcement that Jesus shows up to usher in, to let everybody know about, to demonstrate. In the last paragraph of Revelation, the writer says this. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. So God and Jesus are on the throne. There's a beautiful river flowing through the middle of the city, and on each side of the river is the tree of life. Now, what the writer is intending to do is to remind you of the poem and the, like, the language of Genesis. This is a direct mirror of the Garden of Eden. There's this new garden. There's this new organized garden, the city. And this is how this whole story is going to wrap up. God and Jesus are on the throne in the middle of the city and his servants, that's us, that's humanity, those who have been created in God's image will be in it and they will worship him and they will see his face and his names will be on their forehead. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will shine on them. And here it is. And they will rule forever and always. So all the way back in Genesis, God creates humanity. And he says, I have one job for you. That's to bring about my rule and reign. To live in such a way that demonstrates how I want humanity to live, to conduct themselves, to operate, to treat each other. We lose the plot. Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom of God is here now. And eventually this story ends back in a garden with God's humanity created in his image, ruling just like God intended. That's the whole story of scripture. From beginning to end is this idea of humanity participating in God's rule, participating in God's kingdom. And Jesus shows us how. One last part, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Jesus shows up. His audience would have known what he was talking about when he said the kingdom of God. They would have recognized that they haven't experienced or seen this kingdom in quite some time. And so it would have been good news. It would have been a gospel to them that this person shows up announcing the arrival of God's new kingdom. And so what Jesus says is we should have a response to this message. There should be something that happens in us because of the announcement, because of this opportunity for us to participate in the plan that God set forth in the very beginning. And it's this word, repent. Now this word has been translated a variety of different ways over time, but I think the most accurate translation is this. Change your hearts and lives for the kingdom of God is here. Change your hearts and lives for the kingdom of God is here. The way that you've thought about how you live your life, the way that you think about your relationships and the way that you treat people, the way that you understand your relationship with God and the way that he involves and interacts with you, you need to rethink all of it because there is a kingdom. God's rule is now present and we can participate in it. And this is how God does it. God recognizes that left on our own, 
humanity would have no ability to ultimately become who God created us to be. And so through the person of Jesus, God takes on flesh to become one of us. And it's through Jesus, through God becoming who we were meant to be, that we can finally become who he created us to be. And that's the beauty that we celebrate in Holy Communion. This reminder that it is through Christ that we have the power to change. It is through Christ that we have the power to begin to live a life that allows us to participate in God's rule and reign here on earth. It's an opportunity for us to recognize that Christ changing us on the inside allows us to change our hearts and our lives to become who God created us to be. I mean, the story of scripture is that left on our own devices, we could never do this on our own. We can't try hard enough. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough left by ourselves. But through Jesus, we can. And so as we prepare to celebrate communion in a moment, I want you to begin to think about the ways that you can change your heart, the way that you can change your life, the way that you can open yourself up to the way that God is wanting and working to rule right now. Now, over the next several weeks, I think there's several different keys, several different things that we need to understand about what this kingdom looks like, how we can participate in it, what are the defining characteristics, what are the main ideas, the values, and we'll talk about that in future weeks. But today, know this, we have the opportunity to change our hearts and lives because God's rule, God's work in the world, God's active presence is here and available now. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you great thanks for this opportunity to be reminded of the ways that you have been involved with us from the very beginning of time. Your relationship with humanity constantly inviting us back into relationship, back into participation with your rule and reign. God, help us to change our hearts and lives. Help us to think differently, to see differently the ways that we can participate in what you're already doing here. And God, we thank you most for the gift of your son, for it is only through him that any of this is possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.